Well, if you got a bulletin on the way in, there's a sermon outline in there, I hope, and I would invite you to pull that out. Um, we are in the study through the life of Jesus as recorded by uh, Dr. Luke, and today we're in Luke chapter 15. Today feels like the first day that we kind of got past all of the, the holiday stuff and all of that sort of thing. Um, I hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year. Uh, I last week I told a little bit of the story of what happened uh, to me and Shell over the Christmas uh, weekend. I ended up down at uh, our son uh, Justin's on Christmas Day. I spent four days there. wasn't really planning that, but enjoyed it very much. Uh, they live right across the street from the preschool slash church where uh, Krista is a teacher. Uh, and that makes the commute to work rather easy, but it also means you never really escape from uh, your workplace because they're right across the street. Uh, it was extremely cold and windy on in, in Indiana on Christmas weekend. And in the mid-afternoon on Christmas Day... We noticed out the living room window that the fire alarms were going off at the preschool across the street. Uh, fire trucks showed up, administrators are arriving, and of course, you know, being right there, you can't help yourself. We wa walked all across the street to see what in the world was, was happening. Turns out there was no fire, but uh, a water line had burst, and... Um, uh, water was pouring down on this one storage area of the preschool. Uh, and uh, the low water pressure in the sprinkler system is what alerted the fire department and why they showed up. And so everybody got there. They got the water shut off. It added some drama. It also added some projects to my uh, four-day visit uh, at my son's. Um, all day Tuesday, really, pretty much all day, we spent working at the school, you know, with cleanup and some remodeling things that uh, they had already been planned uh, to work on. But that water pipe, it burst right over, right over a wall full of shelves of kids' books. And you just hate to see that. Uh, but uh, one crew on Tuesday, their, goal, their whole mission was to sort all these out into what's salvageable, what's not salvageable, what are we going to keep, what's going to you know, get tossed and all that sort of thing. I was on the moving boxes out of uh, all over the place team. And so, you know, I was pushing carts and moving boxes. And at one point I came across this stack of kids' books that uh, the sorters had separated, and I noticed this book on top of a pile. Now, um, right away, when I saw the cover, I remembered reading this book when I was a little kid. Uh, and so, for the next 10 minutes, I sat down in that room and I read the book. And I'm sure my son was thinking, lots of help, Dad. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, sitting there reading a kid's book. Um, how many of you read Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel? Yeah, some, some of the, the older crowd, the younger crowd, not so much. And so, um, I guess I can do a spoiler alert here, but I'm going to tell you how it goes. Uh, Krista said I could take this copy. It made it to the discard pile, so I didn't steal it or anything. It was given to me. Um, but 
Uh, it was first printed in 1939, which explains why some of us older folks read about Mike Mulligan and Steam Shovel. Um, but it tells the story about uh, Mike Mulligan and his steam engine Marianne and how they slowly were being replaced by more modern excavating equipment, um, gas engines and diesel equipment and all that kind of thing. And as it turned page after page of this book, it was just all so familiar uh, coming back to me. But you know, I couldn't remember how it ended. As I'm sitting there reading this kid's book, couldn't remember how it, so you know, it's kind of page, uh, kind of pulls you in, so I just kept reading through. Um, like I said, spoiler alert, uh, at the very end, Mike takes a bet that they still have what it takes and can, uh, you know, dig a basement uh, for the Popperville Town Hall in one day, and so they set out to do that, and um, they work so hard and so fast, they forget to leave a way out. This is a page from the book. Maybe if I turn my flip around, there we go. Um, they forget to leave way out, and so the engine, the steam engine, becomes the heating system for the Popperville Town Hall. Moral of the story, I guess, is don't dig yourself into a corner. Um, but for me, it was kind of a this this unusual experience. It was so interesting that there's this story. You know, that I could remember bits and pieces of from 50 years ago. I don't think I've probably read it since I was a kid. I remember this from 50 years ago. Um, and, and it was all still there. It was all still kind of came back in my mind. I, it struck me this week as we started, to, as I started to dig into what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 15, that there's some stories, and maybe you've got a different story that you might uh, notice, but some stories just sort of stick in your brain, or we connect with them so deeply that there's strands of that that are there, there's always there in our lives. And if you come to the the Gospels and you look at uh, Jesus' ministry, he was such an effective storyteller. You know, we call them parables, but they're stories that Jesus made up on the spot to, to make a point. And he's just so powerful, so effective of a storyteller that there's some stories that resonate with people. And I think if there is one story that sticks in most people's brains, whether they are church people or not, you know, whether they've been around the Bible or not, they know about the story of the prodigal son. Um, uh, it resonates with us. Uh, I read this past week that there are over 30 songs that have been written based on the content of the prodigal son, both in classical music, Christian music, obviously, and even secular music. Uh, one that surprised me, Kid Rock has some song based on, <laughs> based on the prodigal son. Um, Shakespeare refers to it twice in his plays. Movies and TV series have attached themselves to that familiarity. And, you know, there's lingo. You know, he's a prodigal. She's a prodigal. We use those kind of phrases. The, that place is a pigsty. Where does that come from? Um, come to your senses. All those phrases, they, they track back. And it's just part of our cultural mentality, if you will. They all find their roots in the story, this famous parable. That, and I say all that to tell you that we're not going to look at that this week. We're going to look at that next Sunday. <laughs> but um, today we're going to introduce that. We're going to move towards it. Um, because right before Jesus tells that really famous parable, and in the context of what I want to look at with you today, Jesus tells two other stories. 
And these stories, they're connected to the story of the prodigal son. They point towards it. In fact, they, you can't really understand the story we're going to look at next Sunday in the prodigal son without what we're looking at today in the first 10 verses. And so if you've got a Bible with you or the Bible app on your phone, if you would find Luke chapter 15, I want to look at the first 10 verses of that uh, with you this morning. I called this Lost and Found Part 1 because, like I said, we're just going to kind of lead into this. Now, usually we think of the story of the prodigal, uh, and the focus is just on the younger brother, you know, wasted his inheritance, eventually came back to his dad. But that parable is really about much more than just one son. It is actually a story about two sons, the prodigal son and his older brother, and how they both responded to their father in wrong ways. Uh, Jesus didn't waste any words in his parables. Everything carried meaning that's deeper than likely we'll ever fully understand. Um, but realizing that two sons were going to be the focal point in that story, uh, it starts earlier. Uh, in fact, it starts in the very first verse there, in the way the chapter opens. So if you got your Bible there, found those verses, verses 1 and 2, it's really important to understand the audience, because that's going to set the stage for the whole chapter. Verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, it would be really tempting to just sort of read those first couple verses as filler, right? Just, yeah, that's a great way to set the background for the story. But Luke was writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and those details in those verses are critically important in understanding the whole chapter. Because it gives us the audience, it gives us the, the, the who's listening to all, of these, all three of these stories that Jesus is going to tell. And explains that in addition to Jesus, in addition to his disciples that were there, there were two specific groups of people that were in view in what Jesus was talking about. Uh, there were tax collectors and sinners on one side, and there were Pharisees and religious teachers on the other side. Now, those two groups could not have been more different from each other than they are. Uh, the, uh, the tax collecting occupation has uh, never been you know, highly esteemed by outsiders. Um, but Jewish tax collectors, they were despised by the people in Israel. Uh, they were individuals that had chosen, made a decision to work for the hated Roman occupying empire. And, uh, you know, their whole job was to collect money from their neighbors. The taxes that Caesar wanted, that Herod wanted, that any other ruling entity wanted. Tax collectors volunteered for the job. Yeah, I'll squeeze my neighbors for that money. And, and at the same time, snatching some extra for themselves. In the time uh, that Jesus lived in the, in the area of, of Israel, it's been said that the, the basic rate for uh, overall taxes taxes hovered around 40% of people's income. Almost half of what you made went to somebody else because of a tax collector knocking on your door. And, and you know, the tax collectors, they were the face of the operation. Everybody, pretty universal, everybody hated tax collectors. 
sinners, the other word that's used in that first verse, you know, that sounds like more of a generic term. We're conditioned as New Testament believers that have read the rest of the New Testament uh, to realize that we're all sinners. And, and that's true. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. But uh, in the way the word is used here, it's kind of a label. Kind of a label for a specific group of people. Uh, the Pharisees were the ones, the religious experts were the ones that had attached this label uh, to those that did not follow the religious rules of the time. Those that did not abide by what the experts, the, the religious class, uh, thought that good people, religious people ought to do. One of the commentators I read this week said, Sinners can simply be those who do not practice religion the way others think that they should. So you got this group on one side, the non-religious crowd. You know, the tax collectors and those that, that uh, weren't uh, following the religious rules and patterns of their culture. Uh, they were you know, the type of, of people that, that good people stayed away from and that mamas told their kids not to hang out with that crowd. Right? That, that was what you find on, on one side. Um, it's kind of interesting to me in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Rather striking, isn't it? That Jesus had this way of attracting people that were the most unexpected, the most unaccepted, and really the most unlike Jesus. They were just magnetically drawn to him. The people everybody else avoided were attracted to the Savior. And he, and he welcomed them. He, he, even, he even ate with them. And that was the repulsive part, really, to uh, the other section of the audience that's in focus. The Pharisees, um, they were the religious elites, if you will. They, were the, they constantly shadowed Jesus through his ministry, especially this later period of time. You know, they re represented the religious establishment. They knew of his popularity. They were kind of puzzled by his miracles. Uh, but they, as a corporate group, had come to the conclusion and decided early on that he was not the Messiah and ought to be opposed at every turn. And so that was their mission. Uh, every time they show up, that was, their t that was their goal. And here they see this whole thing unfolding. Jesus is, is letting tax collectors hang around him. He's letting sinners hang around him. In fact, he's eating dinner with them. You have got to be kidding. They grumble. Uh, they, they murmur, and in their minds, it was just one more piece of evidence, check another box. He cannot possibly be the Messiah. He lets that type of people hang around him. Um, these two groups, they could be summarized, and I think this is a helpful comparison, in this way. The clearly unrighteous and the arrogantly self-righteous. Uh, the tax collectors and sinners, they would probably, they would probably own that first line. They're clearly unrighteous. You know, they knew uh, because everybody told them. But they knew, you know, they were sinners. They knew that, that they didn't measure up to what a good, a good society said a person should be. Uh, no one would question the sinner status for the top line there. And nobody would dare suggest sinner status for the second line. Uh, you know, they were the people that had their lives all together. They were the religious experts. They were the super spiritual in our, in our crowd. Both of those are targets for Jesus in these parables. 
Um, and it's sort of with that backdrop that Jesus tells three parables. Now, like I said, the famous one we're going to get to next week, but here's the first one. A story about a lost sheep. It says in verse 3, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose you, one of you, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now, a hundred sheep, in that culture especially, was a very large flock of, of sheep. So the instinctive question about, you know, how could a shepherd leave a hundred or leave ninety-nine sheep unguarded is kind of irrelevant. One shepherd couldn't have handled that anyway, and so a flock of that size had multiple shepherds caring for it. That really wasn't Jesus' point. We easily get distracted by things that weren't the point. Um, Jesus' point was that out of 100, when one got lost, that still mattered. That one lost sheep mattered so much to the shepherd that, that he was willing to go, in fact passionate to go and search diligent for that one sheep until he found it, until he brought it back home. Now, a couple observations come from just thinking about the, the story Jesus decided to tell. Uh, you know, sheep tend to get themselves in trouble. It's just the way they are. It's really interesting how many times in Scripture God compares people to sheep. Um, but Jesus tells this story, and, you know, and sheep just tend to get themselves in trouble. They need a shepherd. They, they can't really survive very well without a shepherd. I came across this 20-second video that gives you a good idea of the tendencies of sheep. See how it plays here. Yeah, that's a sheep in the in the ditch. There's no sound, but you'll get the point. Yes, that's exactly how how sheep are. That kid works so hard, you know, to get that sheep out of the ditch. And then the thing jumps right straight back into the ditch again. Um, sheep aren't that bright, you know. But, but a good shepherd, a good shepherd goes after them anyway. Kept going after that sheep getting himself in trouble. And in Jesus' story, you know, when, when a shepherd, he finds that one lost sheep tucked away in the ditch or wherever, wherever pulls him out, puts him on his shoulders, carries him back with joy. And remember, Jesus is just sort of making the story up. Just incredible, obviously, as God could do that, but incredible communicator. Uh, and he, he wants to make the point at the end. The shepherd loves that sheep, goes after that one out of a hundred. And, and when he carries it back on his shoulders, he calls all the neighbors and throws a party. Um, so why tell that story? The last verse, verse 7 says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus wasn't talking about sheep. He was talking about the groups of people that were standing right in front of him that he introduced in verses 1 and 2. The sheep story is really all about the tax collectors and sinners. 
So I put this on there. You know, the sinners and the tax collectors, they understood they were lost. They understood probably they brought a lot of that label and a lot of the, the problem in their lives on themselves. But, but they were just so attracted to Jesus. And when one of them would respond to him, turning to him for rescue, they found it. Because Jesus was looking for everyone. You think about those two groups of people, and in a certain way, there's more hope for the clearly unrighteous crowd uh, here than there was for the arrogantly self-righteous crowd. Uh, the sinners, the tax collectors, they were under no illusions that they were good enough to have a relationship with God. They were under no illusions that, that they measured up on their own. Um, they needed help. They needed a Savior. They needed a Messiah. And you know, Jesus had this quality about him that just drew them to him as the answer, as the hope. He loved them. He welcomed them. He taught them about God and his kingdom. And Jesus says at the end, when just one of those sinners, tax collectors and sinners that none of you other guys think are worthy, when one of them turns from their sin and towards um, him as the answer, there's rejoicing in heaven. More rejoicing, and I think maybe Jesus said this sarcastically, but more rejoicing than the rejoicing over 99 who think they're so righteous they don't need to repent. Kind of a zinger aimed at group number two. And the second story is also. So go back to where we stopped. It says in verse 8, you get this second parable about a lost coin. Or suppose, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Now again, a parable was a story that Jesus told, that Jesus uh, you know, came up with probably on the spot. But always to make a point. Always to make a point. He was a brilliant communicator. He turns his focus from the tax collector and sinner crowd now to the other side of the aisle. He turns his focus to, to the group of religious experts, the Pharisees, the teachers of law, um, and uh, kind of highlights them, even though they didn't probably realize it at the time. He describes this woman, likely a, a poor woman, who lost one of ten coins. In Sheep Story, you got one out of a hundred. Here, it's, the percentages have gone up significantly. Now it's one out of, out of ten. Those ten coins may represent all the money that this woman had. And so you can imagine, if you were in her place, with the intensity with which you would search for that. I try and track down that one lost coin. She lit a lamp. She swept every corner in the house. She just aggressively searched for what was lost until it was found. And when she finally located it, she did the same thing as the shepherd. She calls up all the neighbors and says, you know, hey, let's have a party. Uh, let's celebrate. Because what has been lost uh, had been found. Now again, there's just general observations that I think are, are worth thinking about. The coin held tremendous value. Held tremendous value. And that woman was not going to give up until it was found. One coin might not seem like a lot in our culture especially, but um, when that represents likely 10% of all that you own, it's obviously substantial. Uh, she valued that coin. She wasn't going to stop until it was found. 
And if my hunch is right, that Jesus is talking about that second group of people, he is making the point that they were valuable to God too. Maybe they assumed they were more valuable than others, but they were extremely valuable to God. God, and Jesus did not, uh, not want to reach the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He wanted to reach all people. But you think about a coin, and that coin uh, really had no idea that it was lost. And that was the condition, that was the problem for the Pharisees, the religious types. It's a problem a lot of people have today. They don't know. They don't admit that they really have a spiritual need. They've got a void in their life that only God can fill. You know, I think Jesus is addressing the second story to the second group of people, the Pharisees, the scribes, because they had their, li their lives all lined up. Uh, they viewed themselves as valuable in God's economy. They, they assumed they were important currency. But really, they had no idea of their actual state, their actual condition. They had no idea they, they were actually just as lost as the tax collectors and sinners. That they needed Jesus just as badly as that first group. Now, I'm not sure, you know, that sheep are, are much less clueless. But if you remember that video, um, you, can, you can imagine that go, going through the tiny brain of that sheep when he jumped in the ditch for the second time, it was, oh no, here I am again, right? What did I just get myself into? Uh, that, the, that animal at least has some sense that he's in trouble. A coin is not a living thing. Uh, a coin uh, has absolutely no, no idea no sense of condition. I think that's part of the point Jesus was making, that they were just so callous, that they were so, uh, so immune to uh, his ministry. They resisted it so strongly. These religious leaders, arrogantly self-righteous, had no concept of their lostness, their sin, their need for him in their lives. And his point here, and his point again at the end of the prodigal son story, is that he loved them anyway. He loved them too. He loved them just as much as he loved the, the tax collectors and sinners and everybody in between. In fact, he was chasing after them. He had come here for them. And if just one of them... If just one of them would finally get it, would see their lostness, would admit their sin, would turn to Jesus for their only hope and rescue, there would be rejoicing over them as well. As you look at verse 10, it says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who would repent. Same conclusion as the previous story. Same ending. Rejoicing in heaven, rejoicing among the angels watching, joy in heaven when one person finally sees, you know what, I am a sinner. I am lost. Jesus came to find me. I need to turn from my sin and turn to him as my only hope for rescue. When that happens, um, a party starts in heaven. It's two stories. Two stories connected to two groups of people, both with the same need, both with the same potential ending there. Uh, people, uh, those that mess up and know it, and those that, um, you know, think they're pretty good and don't need saving. Both groups of people matter to God. 
and should matter to us, maybe more than sometimes they do. Uh, University of Iowa football team plays in Kinnick Stadium. Got a picture of it up here. There we go. Uh, Kinnick Stadium was built in 1929, renamed in 1939 after Heisman Trophy winner Niall Kinnick, who was killed in World War II uh, and still used by the university uh, for football games. It seats something like 69,000 plus people now. Uh, but in 2017, uh, the University of Iowa built ver right next to the stadium, ridiculously close uh, to the stadium, uh, a new children's hospital. And the entire top floor of the Children's Hospital right next to Kinnick Stadium, the whole top floor is a lounge area where uh, kids that are there, their families that are there, uh, they can go you know, and watch right from the first or the top floor, they can watch the football game go on whenever there's a football game happening right next door. And like I said, it was just opened in 2017. Uh, soon after the stadium, uh, you after that hospital opened, uh, Iowa fans came up with a, an idea that very quickly gained traction. It's called the Kinnick Wave. Uh, for every home game, at the end of the first quarter, everyone in the stadium turns, faces the top floor of the children's hospital, and waves. Uh, waves at the kids, waves at their families uh, that are sitting up there. And it's really taken off, you know, everybody in the stadium does it, the players all do it, the coaches all do it, even the officials do it now uh, for every home game there in, at Iowa Stadium. Uh, and it happens every game. Whether you know they're winning or they're losing, whether uh, the game is going the way Hawkeye fans want it to go or not, uh, everybody stands. Everybody waves at the floor full of sick kids next door. And when I first heard about it, I, you know, I thought, yeah, that's pretty cool. Because the point is obvious. It's to remind everybody there and for them to remind themselves you know, that some things matter more than a game. Uh, sick kids are more important than who wins a football game. As people, we tend to forget what matters more, don't we? All of us do. We tend to forget what matters more in life. And we can get distracted by so much stuff, so many things, the busyness, the, the priorities that just sort of rob our attention and our schedule away. Uh, we can very easily lose track of what, what matters more. And I think Jesus was impressing on a third group of people that were with him on this day that truth that some things matter more. You know, the disciples were in the intensity of training, being prepared for carrying on the work once Jesus was gone. They didn't know all that yet, but they were in the middle of being trained, being taught, um, and the intensity of all of that. And Jesus' disciples were observing all of this happen, hearing all of these stories. And he wanted to impress on them. It doesn't matter whether they are obviously sinners or self-righteous, arrogant types that just sort of grate against you. It doesn't matter where people fit in the categories of the world in which we walk. People who are lost matter to God and need to matter to you.
Which brings me to some points that I want to kind of make at the end here, and then we're going to have communion together. Points to ponder. Here's the first one. God has enormous concern for every lost person. Whether they own their sin, whether they realize they're a sinner, whether they say, you know, there's no way I'm worthy of being saved by God, and they realize they messed up their life on their own, or whether they self-righteously fall into that that type of uh, mentality that, you know, I don't think I really need God. I'm a pretty good person on my own. God has enormous concern for every single person. Um, his passionate desire for every single one of them is the same. And, and the last line there, though, is for us. Do we have that same concern? Do we still do we care as much as God does for the people around us that are lost? Um, that may be a bit pointed of a point to ponder, but I would ask you to consider it closely this morning. Every person matters to God. The shepherd chased the dumb sheep with the same intensity that the woman chased the clearly valuable coin. And all people matter that much to God. In fact, a big part of what the story is we're going to see next week is that God, God uh, pursues, uh, pursues all of us. And that includes you. Um, never know, you know, where every single person is that sits in a service on Sunday morning, but... Um, if you, in your life, would say, you know what, I don't know that I've ever really done what those last couple of verses say, turn from my sin and turn to God. I don't know that I've ever really acknowledged that I have this need, spiritual need, that separated me from God. Um, I want you to know the truth of the gospel, that the whole mission of Jesus was to come here to save people like you. Like me. We're all sinners. We all come up short of God's standards. Left to ourselves, we will spend eternity in hell if it was left to us. Because no one's good enough. No one seeks after God. God sought us. And that's the whole life of Jesus is about. God the Son came here, born as a baby, lived a perfect life, so that one day... He could die on a cross and pay for your sin, my sin, and give us, offer us, his perfect record in our place. And all we have to do is respond to that with faith. Turning from our sin and turning to the Savior. Jesus did not just die for some people for the good people. Jesus died for all people. And a couple of verses that sort of stuck in my thinking this week. Paul wrote to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 1. Here's a trustworthy saying, deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And he wrote the chapter, the very next chapter, this is good, pleases God our Savior who wants all people, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all people. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. At one time, Paul was a Pharisee. At one time, Paul fit into group number two of the story here. 
He had his life all lined up. He kept all the religious rules. Everybody else looked at Paul and said, this guy is right with God. It's pretty obvious. And yet, and yet at that very moment, he was as far away from God as the worst tax collector anybody would meet. Later, Paul realized that. He realized that it's the worst of them all. But he met Jesus. He turned from his sin. He was totally transformed. He'd come to realize the, the opposite of what he previously believed was actually true. That Jesus had come to rescue him. He's come to rescue you. He's come to rescue me. Jesus gave his life as a ransom, sufficient for all people. And he wants all people to respond to it. Um, it includes you, it includes me, it includes the people that grate against you, it, it includes the, the people that seem unnoticeable in your life, it includes every person you're going to cross paths with this week. Jesus came and died for them. The second thing builds on that, and it's really important. God has taken the initiative to rescue those who are lost. He's done everything necessary to make rescue possible. I was thinking that in one sense, all three of these stories sort of highlight two, two sides of salvation. You know, on one side, we realize God did everything that is needed. We don't need to do anything to be saved or to save ourselves. He loved us. He sent his son to live a perfect life and sacrificed that perfection in our, in our place for our sin. His death was sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world. And you know, Paul wrote, he wants all people to be saved, but that doesn't mean that all people are. Um, and the way he closed both those stories highlights it. Salvation only connects with, applies to those that repent of their sin and turn to Jesus in faith for salvation. Twice he used that word repentance. It means action on our part. It means admitting that we are sinners that have this need. And Jesus is our only hope. We call to him and we put our faith in him in prayer. It's the only way for forgiveness. It's pretty clear, reading down through these first ten verses, Jesus was talking about people in his stories. Not really, it wasn't really about sheep. It wasn't really about coins. It's about people. Um, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He is the friend of sinners. He came to provide salvation for everyone who would respond with repentance and faith. And again, if you haven't done that, I hope that today you will. I hope that today you'll make that, that decision to turn to Jesus. But if you have, I don't think this is something that we ever really get over. And by that I simply mean we have to constantly be responding to, constantly be recognizing, you know what, I, I still sin too often and I need to turn from that. Jesus had to die for what I just did. Crying out loud. We don't need to be saved more than one time. But we need a constant reminder of the need for Jesus in our lives. That's why I wrote at the very end there, how are you responding? Not did you respond one time years ago. How are you responding right now to what Jesus had to do to save you? I'm still a sinner, too often the worst of them, and I need Jesus every single day. And the last one is this. 
Repentance of sinners is grounds for celebration. Heaven is watching the spiritual responses of people in this world, including you, including me. And it's a valid question to ask in the way that you're relating, I'm relating to Jesus, to his word, to what he did for us. Is heaven rejoicing right now over the way that you are responding to Christ? We're going to have the communion service today and kind of going back to doing it the way that it's been done in the past. Some deacons are going to come in just a minute. But I ask you to pray with me. So if you'd bow your heads, close your eyes. Um, I'm going to share a few things as we move into that. Um, but I really want you to think. Think not just as we're partaking of communion, but be thinking right now. Those questions. Um, have you responded to the, the, the gospel, the message that Jesus, the Son of God, died for you? That's the most important question. If you turn from your sin and turn to him. If not, don't worry about the communion part of things. Spend the next few minutes talking to God. Tell him that you recognize your sin. You believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for you. And you want to accept, you want to receive his salvation. But I've got to ask some questions. Um... Do I have the same level of concern for people that are lost that Jesus had? Um, am I responding uh, to God and dealing with my sin the way that I should as his child? And as heaven watches, and to me it's always a thought to consider verses like this, point out that those in heaven can't see what's going on in life down here. Heaven watches my life, your life, is the rejoicing or something less. Father, I pray, I pray that we would take the truth of these two short stories and the context of them. And in whatever way your Holy Spirit has sort of pushed it into our heart and sort of touched a nerve here or there, I pray that we'd respond to it. Communion is a great opportunity. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But it's a great opportunity to really think about where we are individually as a person with you. And I ask you to, to prod us to do that today. Make us open books to your spirit. May we think about how, how, do, I, how do I need to respond today. God help us. In Jesus' name.